We're going to read from the Bible now. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 28. Um, It'll come up on the screen behind me as well. And we're looking at Matthew chapter 28 from verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. It's great to have you with us. If this is your first time with us, if you're kind of just finding out about faith or in the early stages of that, or if you're a follower of Jesus who's looking to grow in your faith, it's great to have you with us for this series called Counterculture. And I did get a message earlier this week uh, about the design for it, asking whether there was a reason that there was a gap in the word culture right after cult. And I said, yes, it's one of our core values to put the cult back in counterculture. That's one of our purposes here at City Light. Now, we'd have a very different giving series if that was the case. We'd be putting together a fund for buying a family compound somewhere, right, and stocking up arms and supplies. That's not what we've been covering. That's not what we're going through. Now, we've been looking at these first three weeks and what it means to steward our finances as people who are not owners of what we have, but merely stewards. And that what we are called to do is to steward our things in such a way that we might release as much as possible to advance the gospel and to alleviate poverty and injustice in the world. And this is what it means to seek first the kingdom, according to Jesus' words. And so I'm going to pray that as we dive into it this morning, that again, God would only increase our desire to follow him and to live changed and transformed lives under his good lordship. So let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you are an everlasting and loving God that you were before all things and that you are the one who holds all things in your very hand including our lives we thank you that through Christ through belief in him we can have forgiveness and life eternal and that this is our sure foundation and hope and that everything that we have is impacted by this the way we live our lives, the way we steward our finances are all to come under the reality of the gospel and the truth that there is a God who loves and who offers life eternal to all who would believe in his Son. Father, we pray that you might be glorified through our meeting together this morning. Amen. The Roald Dahl is the famous children's author who kind of brought us books like the BFG, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, The Witches. I could go on and on, but you're probably familiar with his work. Most people are familiar with those kind of classics. Most people are not familiar with the short stories he wrote for an adult audience. And the reason for that is they're incredibly depressing. They're mostly about death or war or that kind of thing. But there is one bright spot. There's one called The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar. And it goes like this. It was recently adapted into a short film. The story starts with Henry Sugar, who is a largely wealthy, independently wealthy man who enjoys gambling. And one day he reads a doctor's report on a strange patient called The Man Who Sees Without Using His Eyes. You can imagine what the book was actually about at that point. The patient had the ability 
even after the doctors had bound his eyes and his head to actually see. The man was part of a circus act and he used this ability to, to make money. He'd been interested in magic his whole life and he'd studied with Yogi Hadawa in India who taught him how to see through thin objects like playing cards uh, or, or other kind of things like paper. And he demonstrates this ability and the doctors are astonished. They can't believe it. They can't disprove it. It seems to be that he has a genuine ability to see with his eyes closed. And they start to imagine all of the medical applications for this, what this might mean for people who, who suffer blindness. And so they go to find this man, so they go to the circus where he's performing an act, but when they get there, he's already died. And Henry, Henry Sugar, who's reading this book, this doctor's report about what happened, thinks of a different application for this skill. With this ability, he could go to a casino and make untold fortunes and do it legally. And he realizes that this man's book contains all the details that he needs to study and to develop this ability. And so he does. He commits himself to three long years of patient, consistent, assiduous practice. And he develops the ability to be able to see even with his eyes closed. He masters the ability and he goes to a casino. And with this power, he's able to make an incredible amount of money, an amount really equivalent to even buying a small house in his first outing. And so with this in mind, he wins an incredible amount, and then he goes back to his apartment, but when he gets there, something unexpected happens. Because he's won the money so easily and without any effort or trying, he feels a kind of revulsion towards the money, and he doesn't want it. And kind of on a whim, he goes out to his balcony, and he throws it all out of, of the balcony. It causes a near riot in London as people kind of scramble and fight to pick up 20 and whatever $50 bills. And a police officer knocks on his door and says to him, like, what are you doing basically? You're a maniac. Can't you think of a more charitable way to distribute this money? And on the moment, he says, I'm going to create the best and most supportive orphanages in the world. And he does. He goes out and he wins money. He eventually attracts the attention of some mafioso who owns several of the casinos where he's been taking the money and he realizes I'm going to have to be a bit smarter about this. So he enlists the help of a makeup artist who gives him new disguises. And so he comes up with a scheme where he flies all around the world under different names and disguises, makes all of this money and then funnels it into the best orphanages in the world. And at the end of it, it concludes with the line that the Henry Sugar orphanages established all across the world are the best in the world. What is the point of this story? It's not reality, because of course many people have become easily and famously wealthy and really have just become easily and famously selfish. They have in no way used this ability to distribute that money to the poor. Now the point is this, that money without a mission is meaningless. To be able to have that much money and that much means and to have no mission beyond yourself to give it to leads to meaninglessness. And the fantasy of this story is imagine if there was something that could transform someone who had that ability into a good person who would actually seek to do as much good as they possibly can in the world. This is what it might look like. Well, if you're a follower of Christ, if you say that Jesus is your Lord, you have a mission. We are commissioned by Christ as his church to make disciples of all nations. And while we look at the call to steward our finances to alleviate poverty and injustice in the past two weeks, this week we're focusing specifically on how it is that we are called to advance the gospel 
through the local church, and through global missions. And this can be tricky to speak on for me because I'm a pastor. And it can be right, maybe rightly even, that sometimes it arouses suspicion when pastors start talking about money and particularly about giving to the church where they work and are potentially a beneficiary. It's also additionally tricky because when I speak about alleviating poverty, in our culture there's very few people who would condemn that. Australians don't generally do it. We tend to give about 0.3% of our income away to not-for-profits. So that's not three cents to, a, to every hundred dollars. That's three cents to every thousand. But in our culture, it's generally seen, even though we don't do it, as something that's good. But giving to a local church is kind of seen with a little more suspicion. And then global missions is sort of somewhere in between. But here's the thing. On that first week, we looked at Jesus' call to his church to be salt and light. He says, you're not to be like the culture around you, but you are to shine the light of Christ into the culture. And so the point is this, that the word of God and not the ever-shifting opinions of the culture around us is our compass for what we should do and how we are to live. And we go where scripture goes. And it's clear that the church has a mission. And we're to steward our finances and our money to advance the gospel and the mission that he has called us to be a part of. And the reason we're to do that is that Matthew 28, the conclusion of the Gospel of Matthew, which details the whole story of the life of Jesus, finishes with Jesus on a mountain telling his disciples what to do. Come with me to Matthew 28, starting at sentences 16 and 17. It says, Now the eleven disciples, and there are eleven now instead of twelve, because Judas has betrayed Jesus and gone out from them. It says, The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus arranges a meeting with his disciples on a mountaintop. He's directed them where to go, and he says, meet me there, and I'm going to give you, some, I'm going to give you instructions. And this is great vision casting technique, isn't it? They always say, if you're going to do a long-term strategic, you should do it off-site at an inspirational location. And so Jesus was way ahead of corporate culture and HR. He's organized a strategic off-site. He says, meet me at a mountaintop. I've got something to tell you. And as they meet there, Jesus says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth. This is the risen Lord Jesus, who they saw crucified, dead and buried, who has risen to new life. The resurrected Jesus Christ says to them, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. And he goes on to say this. Come with me to Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. When Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, I don't know what your immediate reaction to it is. Our, our cultural inclination is to resist authority. We don't tend to like authority, and even if people have authority over us, we're okay with it so long as they don't bring it to our attention very often or in very obvious ways. Nobody puts on their social bios, I just love being under authority. That's one of my hobbies or pastimes. We don't. And it's because, as we've looked at in previous weeks, one of our core Western beliefs is that my main allegiance is to myself. My main mission in life is to find my authentic self and to express that. My main allegiance is not to a community or an organization, but to myself. 
And so when Jesus says, all authority belongs to me, it kind of rubs us the wrong way. But he has a right to say this. See, Jesus is saying to them, on a mountain, all authority belongs to me. But this is now, and there have been many, but this is one of four encounters throughout the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus has revealed something significant about himself on a mountain. In the first week we looked at Matthew 5, which was Jesus' sermon on the what? On the mount. It is probably the most famous sermon in history and most influential. It has had influence far beyond the church and far beyond even our culture. And when Jesus preached this sermon, he said it in such a way that it left the crowd shocked. After he's taught all of these things, these are all the blessed bees, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the peacemakers. This is his teaching about being salt and light. This is his teaching about loving your neighbor and turning the other cheek. After he concludes teaching all of that, at the end we're told that the crowd were astonished. In Matthew 7, 28 and 29 it says, When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And he was teaching them as one who had authority. Not like their scribes. When they hear Jesus teach, he has such insight into their lives that people are like, I feel like he's speaking directly to me. And it's crazy that even 2,000 years later, the things that Jesus said are still reverberating through our culture. The ways in which he taught, the lessons in which he, he led through, are still impacting people. Jesus taught with real authority. And the people of the day were like, he doesn't teach like our scribes who just kind of say this and that. He's got, a, he's got a weight and an authority and a gravity to what he says. And Jesus revealed on that mountain that he has authority, that he has knowledge and wisdom. And some people are happy to leave Jesus there. They're like, I accept that Jesus was a great teacher, a great man, and he said some really important things. He influenced people like Mahatma Gandhi, who was instrumental in, in the independence of, of India. And authors like Leo Tolstoy, who didn't really believe that he was God, but thought he was a great teacher. Some people are happy to leave it there at the first mountain. But then there is another experience that his disciples have on another mountain. We're told in Matthew 17 that three of his closest disciples, so Peter, James, and John, go up with him to a mountain. And before them, Jesus is transfigured. He reveals his power. It says that his face shone like the midday sun, that it was blinding light. And we read this in Matthew 17, it says, He was still speaking when a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. So this Jesus that they've been following around is suddenly transfigured before them, and they hear this voice from heaven say, This is my Son, listen to him. And they fall on their faces and are terrified. We're told elsewhere that when people have heard the audible voice of God, it's like thunder. I don't know where you were on Monday when the storms hit, but when that thunder came through, if you were, even if you were outdoors, many people reported feeling the ground shake beneath their feet. And like if you were in a house, it might be that the windows were rattling or the floorboards were shaking, whatever it is. But when you're outside and the ground beneath you rumbles, it has to be the possibly the most disconcerting feeling you can experience. The most solid thing, the most unmovable thing in our experience is earth. The biggest things we build as humankind, we build them on the earth. That's the foundation because it's the most unshakable thing we know. 
And to know that when Jesus speaks, when God speaks, it could shake the very foundations of the earth is even just a mild demonstration of his power. That this is the Jesus that they're following. He's not just a teacher with all wisdom and knowledge. He's a God with all power. He has the authority of knowledge and of power. But of course, if you put those two things together, it could be a terrible and terrifying thing to follow Jesus. If it's just the case that he's all-knowing and all-powerful, it could be the case that you follow him purely out of fear. That the main reason you follow him is like, he's not a God to be messed with. I guess I have to follow him, like a tyrant. But then there is a third mountain experience. On the night before Jesus was to die, on the night that he was to be betrayed and arrested, he takes them to the foot of another mountain, not the top, but the foot. And they go to a garden called Gethsemane. And he brings his disciples there because he is weighed down with sorrow and he asks them to watch over him and to pray for him as he goes and prays. And they see Jesus shaken like they've never seen him before. There have been times when crowds have wanted to take his life and Jesus has just walked through them calmly as if it was an afternoon stroll. But here, Jesus is so shaken, we're told that he sweats drops of blood. They've never seen Jesus like this. And the reason for it is they have no idea what he's about to face. That when he goes to the cross the following day, he's not going just to be tortured and died. Many Christian martyrs have gone happily even to their deaths. He knows that he's going to face the wrath of God for all the sin of humankind. It, all of it will fall and break upon his head. And he knows what's going on and his disciples don't. And at that mountain, he reveals not just that he's all-knowing and all-powerful, but that he's all-good. I mean, how inclined are you to listen to someone who you believe is genuinely good, whose intentions are good and right, who has actual integrity? Your inclination to listen to what they say is way above the average person. But here, when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth is mine, he means all of it. He has all the authority of someone who is all-knowing and all-wise. He has all the authority of someone who is all-powerful and whose very voice can shake the foundations of the earth. And he has all the authority of someone who is ultimately good and who would die even for his enemies, who would be crucified and have nails driven through his hands and his feet for the very people that he was dying to save. There is none like Christ. And so when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, it should have our ears and our hearts. That what he says next matters. And he says to his disciples, to nearly the entirety of the church at that point in time, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And lo, I am with you until the end of the age. This is the mission that Jesus gives his church. This is the calling that we're to be a part of. And this is the counter-narrative to what is the main calling of our mission in life. Generally, in our city, the main calling of life is to eke out your own mission and for that mission to be about your own self-actualization. That our mission in life is to find ourselves, to do what's right by us, to work out what our place is in the world, and to live it out to the best of our ability. But I'll put to you that one of the main symptoms of this way of living and living for the self, one of the main symptoms of it is just boredom and apathy. 
Walker Percy, the author, once said, and this is probably the best definition of boredom I've ever heard, he said, boredom is the self stuffed with the self. That is as bored as a soul can be. When all you do is sit there by yourself, thinking about yourself, you have reached the end. It's the end. But I think our deeply held cultural belief that life is really about me and about finding and expressing our true self just leads to a kind of a, a boredom, a lack of like adventure, a, a lack of a calling to sacrifice and to do something significant. People are bored with their jobs, bored with their marriages, bored with their pleasures. Even talking to a cafe owner a couple of years ago, I, I said to him, I said, look, base, you are basically like a local lounge room or like, almost like a, the local free counsellor here in Balmain. People come to you in their mornings and they just, they'll chat about their lives. What is the life of the, the average person in Balmain? And he summed it up, as, he just said, people are, people are bored. He says, people will grind hard during the week. They'll work their 10 plus hours a day. And then to manage the stress of that, they go out and party like 17 year olds on Friday or Saturday night. And they come in here dusty and try and gear up over Sunday and recover just to do it all over again, week to week to week. Of course, that isn't the life of every single person all around, but that was his experience as a cafe owner here in our city and in our, in our community. But it's definitely the case that this, the, the, the central belief that life is all about us is leading to a boredom and an apathy. You might have heard the strange fact that, that Inuit people have 20, 50, 1,000 words for snow because it's a reality that they're so familiar with. We have 20, 50, 1,000 words for boredom and apathy. We have meh, mid, average, plain, basic, bland. They could go on and on and on because it's a reality that we are very familiar with. Dorothy Sayers once said that apathy or boredom is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which it would die. We need something more and a mission that is going to draw us out of ourselves into a grand story that started long before we were born, will continue long after we leave this earth, and then is much bigger than ourselves and beyond us. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and be a part of what I am doing in the world, calling people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to myself. Make disciples of all nations. He says, this is what life is all about. This is what I commission you to do. And he is worthy of our trust in giving our whole lives to because there is no one with more knowledge and wisdom, no one with more power, and no one with more goodness than him. J. Campbell White once put it this way, and the quote will come up on the screen for you. He said, Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within his followers except the adoption of Christ's purpose toward the world he came to redeem. Fame, pleasure, and riches are but husks and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. Why has God put you here? Why were you born in the place and in the relationships and in the time and space in which you were born? Why do you have the money that you have? Why were you born in an era where you can get anywhere in this world almost within 24 hours. Why is it that you have an ability that humankind has not been... There's been one person who's had that ability throughout history, and he's the one with all authority, but no one else in human history has enjoyed that ability throughout time. 
Why is it that you're given all these things at this particular time? I can give you a clue from Matthew 28. It's not to go on a Kentucky tour or the end of season footy trip to Bali. There is a purpose beyond that. We are alive in the golden age of global missions. Where for the first time since Jesus uttered those words, there is a Bible-believing Christian in every geopolitical nation on earth. And you're called to be a part of God's global mission here locally, where you're called to live and to work and to serve, and called to be a part of sending people globally, like Claire, heading over to reach people with the gospel. J. Campbell White was right, fame and pleasure and, risk and riches are just husks and ashes compared to this. Life to the full means adopting his mission towards his world. And did you notice the end of his promise there? After he says this and lays out this incredible vision of what it would look like to follow him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, he finishes by saying, and behold, I'll be with you to the end of the age. This is obviously well beyond you, but I will be with you. I think part of the reason our experience of God can be so impoverished is because we aren't living with his mission in mind. If you feel flat, it's worth asking, look, when was the last time you took a risk to advance the gospel, locally or globally? To cut back spending and send it forward to making disciples. Jesus says as we carry out his mission, he'll be with us. And so often we experience his nearness when we take risks for the sake of the gospel. And it makes sense. If you live a life that's essentially about your own immediate needs, wants and desires, who needs a God in that world? Who needs anything beyond what you immediately have? But if you're to take risks, you're going to need God to show up. You're going to need his help. You're going to need strength and courage. And ultimately, it's a blessing that he calls us to be a part of what he is doing in the world. He's not said to us, look, I've done enough. I, I died on the cross. What have you done lately? Okay? Can you just go and make some disciples, please? No, instead... He's inviting us into what he is already doing around the world. The fact that we're here in Australia speaking about the same Jesus and the same gospel and the very words that his disciples heard in the first century is because God is true to his word. There is no world religion that has crossed as many cultural or language barriers as the gospel. It is evidence to the truth and reality of what Jesus said, that he was Lord and all authority belongs to him and he invites us to be a part of it. And so what do we do with this? Well, if this is our mission, it does, in the end, involve our money. That Jesus said, as we looked at last week and the week before, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And there are many needs in the world. As we looked at previously, more than half the world lives on less than, oh, sorry, almost a billion people live on less than $2 a day. The reason we were doing that downsizing challenge is, is to, to acknowledge that reality. We were called to do something about it. But this week we're focusing in on advancing the gospel locally and globally. And it will mean involving our money. And so this year, we've got a couple of changes as a church community to draw your mind to. If you are a member here of City Life, so if you're visiting, it's a great chance to tune in. If you're a member, this is something that applies to you directly. The past few years, we've done a church starter campaign. At the beginning of the year, we've raised close to 30K kind of each year. And this year, we're not doing that. And the reason for that is that we actually fell behind by about 30k last year. And so where we need to get to for our annual budget is to up it by about 25k, which is the cost of this building over the year, or a large portion of a staff worker. 
And so we actually need to increase our regular monthly giving over the year to meet that end. And we need to do that unless we'd be happy to hand out sunscreen before the service and meet down at the water there with a single guitar and just sing Kumbaya, or to go back up to the building and suspend the children from the roof. I haven't done the costing on what that would be. It might be similar to 25K anyway, so we might be right back around to where we started. But in all seriousness, we've been making great ground over these years, and it would be a real setback if we don't hit budget this year. So as we come to pledging this time around, keep that in mind. We need growth in that area as a local church community. That's the needs of our local church. We're behind on that. We want to step forward into that over this year as we look to advance the gospel through this church community. But as well as that, as Claire laid out before, there are global needs and others that we give to. And so this year we're changing how we do giving at City Light. Since 2016, we've had two funds. One is for church operations. One is for global missions and poverty alleviation and injustice organizations. That's been a separate fund. And this year... We're decentralizing that. There'll just be one fund for operations and the other one we're discontinuing. And the reason for it is this. Over these years, we've given close to 10% of our church budget away, which is an incredible thing. So uh, since 2016, it's been over 200K has gone out to global missions, has gone out to organizations like Asylum Seeker Center in Newtown or Diamond Pregnancy. And so part of the thought would be, well, look, if it's been so good over those years, why would we be stopping it? The reason for it is, I think we can be more effective in it. And by decentralizing it and asking members to give directly to organizations or to missionaries, we think we can actually increase our giving over this year. And if it doesn't work, we're going to change back. But the reason, that, the reason that we think it might be more effective is for three reasons. The first is kind of practical and boring, but tax deductibility. Some of those organizations that we give to, if you give to them directly, it's tax deductible. If you give it to the church to give it to them, it's not. And so we're hoping that will actually free up some more funds to give away. The second one is engagement. In supporting missionaries, the counsel that we have is that the best way to do it is for individuals to give to that missionary. And the reason for it is partly because Jesus says where your heart is, your treasure is. That as you give to someone directly, you are more engaged with their mission and what they are doing and with keeping up with them. But also... God forbid that you should ever leave this church, but if you do, you'll be more likely to keep giving to that missionary and maybe even in your new church community, invite others to do the same. And so over time, it can actually increase mission support for a missionary. And the third one is awareness. The way we want to support key organizations this year is by having a Sunday for each one where someone will come along from that organization, explain what it's about, and where we can give more directly and in a more engaged way. But we don't want to do this if it's actually going to lead to less generosity rather than more. We suspect it will be more, we don't want it to be less. And that's why if you're a member, pledging this year is really going to matter. We do pledging anonymously, but it's a way at the beginning of the year to say, this is what I'm setting aside as a kingdom-first mindset. Before I'm generous to myself, I want to be generous to others. And in order to track that, we're asking people to write down what they would give to church, to alleviate poverty and injustice and to global missions at the beginning of the year and we'll check in again on it in August to see that we're actually tracking along with that. But our hope is that as we track these things, we will see that actually more and more is being released and given away year after year. That there's a higher and higher engagement from our church community with these kingdom causes and with his kingdom purposes. And the reason for this and the reason this matters 
is because lives are on the line. We're playing with live ammunition here. It really matters. Let me finish it by explaining it in this way. In 1994, Schindler's List was the movie that won the Academy Award for Best Picture, Best Director, and it pretty much won everything across the board. But it's based on a 1982 novel uh, called Schindler's Ark by an Australian novelist called Thomas Keneally. And it tells the true story of Oskar Schindler, who was a, a, a German industrialist who ended up saving more than 1,300 Polish-Jewish refugees from the Holocaust by employing them in his factory as a way of covering for them. And the final scene in the movie, which I imagine is, is just an embellishment on the story, but the final scene in the movie depicts Oskar Schindler in his factory with all of the workers around him and all the people whose lives he has saved. And they, they've used what modest gold they have, largely extracted from fillings or things like that, and they've melted it down into a ring as a thank you for him. And one of the factory workers comes up to him and presents him with the ring and says there's an inscription on it. He says it's Hebrew from the Talmud. It says, whoever saves one life saves the world entire. And at that point, Schindler breaks down and he starts to cry. And he says things like, I could have given more. I could have got more people out. And they try to console him saying, look, 1,100 people are alive because of you and of what you've done. But he can't get the thought out of his mind. And even not paying attention to their consolations, he keeps saying things like, if I made more money, I threw away so much money, you have no idea, I didn't do enough. This car, why did I keep this car? That could be 10 people right there. This pen, this could be a person here or two people. And he goes on and on and on until it sort of trails off. And the point of the movie is kind of ending on a sad note. That a man who was so committed to good at the end, as he looked around at his stuff, really just saw it in light of human lives. At the end of our days, we'll look around at our possessions in a room full of expensive items and just think of all the lives that could have been saved. We are to budget wisely and to steward wisely. But we are to think first of the kingdom and of generosity and with others in mind. There is a global mission that we are called to be a part of, locally and globally. There are needs to be met, and it matters because lives are on the line. One author puts it this way, he says, You cannot take your treasure with you, but you can send it on ahead. We're called to seek first the kingdom. We're called to put our treasure where our heart is meant to be. May we do this for the glory of God and for the sake of others and the love of them. Let's pray. Father, you are the God of generosity who opened the storehouses of heaven and poured out what was most precious. We praise you that Jesus willingly laid down his life for sinners like us, that we might have within ourselves life eternal. And may it move us to steward wisely and thoughtfully, but with generosity in mind, knowing that it is our joy to imitate our Heavenly Father and our Saviour. And so, Father, we just pray that as a church there would be a, an outpouring of generosity. As we consider what you call us to, that it would move us to take risks for the sake of the gospel and for the good of others. May we experience with that 
the joy of Christ, who for the joy set before him despised the cross, scorning its shame, but went willingly, knowing that it was for us, the church. And Father, in all these things, may we be strengthened by your Holy Spirit, by the remembrance of your grace and kindness toward us in Christ, and all for the glory of your name. Amen.